Well, hello and welcome. I'm Guy Stevens, the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. And you are here today for AASR Live. Uh, I will tell you, however, I'm not live. Well, I am alive, but this session is actually being pre-recorded. So uh, right now it is Thursday, August 31st, and we're actually recording today's session, uh, which will air, and it will air live, on September 7th. So if you are watching right now and it is September 7th, around 3.30 Eastern time here in the United States, uh, know that it's a day ahead in New Zealand, which happens to be where our uh, our special guests are coming to us from today. Uh, but again, I just wanted to note that we are not live, which is why we're not doing our usual uh, questions during the broadcast. But be be very aware this is being recorded live. Um, so, um, you know, it will be a one shot recording and uh, it will be delivered to you uh, live as it's made available. So um, do want to let you know, of course, uh, as I mentioned, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. The Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint is an organization that is focused on really doing better for kids, for teachers, for others. Uh, you know, we began our work around the use of restraint seclusion in schools here in the United States, uh, but our mission has continued to grow. It's not just about restraint seclusion, and it's not just in the United States. It's about often all the things that are being done to kids or other people very commonly in the name of behavior. So it's restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. Uh, it's failed attempts to uh, support kids in, uh, you know, behavioral modification and management programs that not only are not effective, but can in fact be harmful. So our work is really about informing change and doing better. It's about uh, really advocating for, you know, trauma-informed, neuroscience-aligned, relationship-driven and collaborative approaches. Uh, so anyway, uh, check out our website, which is nseclusion.org to learn more about the organization. And let me just transition into talking a little bit about today's presentation. Uh, as I mentioned, while you will be seeing this airing live, this will have been recorded previously. Uh, and we have a really special presentation in store for you today. And uh, you're going to get to, oops, and I'm trying to find my other screen here. You're going to get to meet uh, a couple of people that I really think highly of and, and highly admire. And I tell you every week that I'm really excited about today's presentation. And it's always true. Uh, we book people to come talk to you and uh, talk to me that we're excited about having join us. And today is certainly no exception. Uh, today, uh, we've got with us uh, Balji Soma Sundrum, and I hope I'm getting that right. I got a head shake off camera, and Mira Balji. Uh, and I've actually had the privilege of not only knowing them for some time, but actually getting to meet them in person uh, not too long ago. But let me tell you a little bit about uh, them. Uh, they are husband and wife, and they were lawyers uh, for 20 years in India. Uh, as they describe in their past lives. And I'm, I'm somebody with one of those past lives as well. You know, of course, I was a uh, uh, fisheries biologist, marine biologist, environmental scientist, and uh, somehow life changed. And, and here I am. Uh, and they have focused on children's rights and family law. And they are registered uh, teachers and special educators in New Zealand. And they have been working as learning support coordinators across 12 schools and 13 early childhood uh, centers in Wellington. Uh, and uh, doing some really amazing work. And, you know, one of the things that they say is that, you know, they believe they're in a, a position to recognize uh, students and their families' perspectives, their narratives, uh, their ongoing challenges, and really strive to provide appropriate support services uh, through timely actions and, and healing trauma 
to help buffer against the, the negative effects of trauma. And they're both very passionate advocates uh, for social justice and inclusion and diversity uh, in both their personal and professional lives. And that's much of the, the glue that has connected us and, and kept us together here as well. Uh, and of course, as educators uh, from a minority culture in New Zealand, uh, they really believe that uh, children need to experience relationships uh, around them with unconditional care, compassion, and commitment. I I'm sure that if you're watching this, you're probably as excited as I am uh, in hearing these words. And of course, you know, these are people that are doing work that's making a tremendous difference, uh, informed by work of, of people like Dr. Stephen Porges. Uh, and they've got a uh, background in educational psychology and, and uh, teaching. Uh, and specialties and, and uh, understanding and working with uh, individuals that are autistic. Uh, really a lot of great stuff. They were actually both uh, part of the Applied Educational Neuroscience Program, which you've no doubt heard us talk about quite a bit. Uh, that's the program that Dr. Lori Desitels, uh runs out of Butler University. Uh, and that's a program where we have seen uh, really amazing uh, people and, and uh, amazing uh, work happening. Uh, and they were part of that program. In fact, it was one of the, the ways that I think we connected initially. So anyway, you are in for a treat. You're in for a treat. Um, we've got, uh, I always talk about how when we do these live events, we have people from all over the world that are joining us. And, you know, right now, if you happen to watch live, you know, share in the chat, tell us who you are and where you're from. I'd love to hear from you, even though we're not technically uh, live today. Uh, we'd love to hear who you are and where you're from. And, and just keep in mind, again, uh, you know, we are working across the world with amazing partners like the two individuals you're going to meet today. And, and this is work to help promote change. Uh, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring up and introduce our guest. And uh, I will mention that I noticed a moment ago, for some reason, my camera was trying to uh, make my face look different. And I'm not quite sure why. I was not trying to shave yours on. I think yours off. Somehow my camera got stuck in trying to enhance my appearance. My appearance is what it is at this point in my life. So I've taken that off and hopefully don't really look ridiculous anymore. So Miriam Balji, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, not only for being here today, but thank you for the work that you've been doing throughout your career. Uh, thank you for, for standing up and, and pushing for you know, social justice and, and advocating for individuals. Um, it's always a pleasure when I get to meet amazing people like yourselves and have an opportunity uh, to to learn, uh, to hear things that I've not heard before. I mean, I, I often joke with people. I do these live events and, uh, you know, I, I almost feel like over the almost four years that I've been doing these, uh, almost like I've had the best course in the world in front of me uh, as I'm able to talk to amazing people like you. So Miriam Balji, let me stop talking. Welcome. Thank you for joining us here today. We're really excited to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Guy, for your very kind introduction. We really feel humbled and we take this opportunity to express our heartfelt thanks to you for having us today and for inviting us to talk about cultural safety, which is quite meaningful and rewarding. We know your time is precious and we are immensely grateful that you are able to carve out some time with us and for all your encouragement. We also want to acknowledge and appreciate your invaluable contributions and the exceptional work and advocacy you're continuing to do. So, Guy, it was an absolute pleasure and honor to meet you personally in Maryland and we felt an instant connection with you. We remember passionately talking about culture, neurodiversity and equity. 
From the moment we first connected, we knew you are a selfless, dedicated human who wants the very best for all our students. And we learned so much listening to you and always feel you share invaluable practical insights and your ability to share key concepts and practical ideas are commendable. We are truly, truly grateful and can't express how excited and Humble we are here to be with each and every one of you. Thank you again for giving us this wonderful opportunity. Well, well thank you. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not used to getting such a wonderful introduction when I do these live events, but but I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I feel that in my heart. Uh, I, I, I genuinely uh, appreciate those those words. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm transported back to uh, a Cracker Barrel in California, Maryland, where we sat down and had some breakfast, uh, and, and it was such a, a pleasure. And, and I remember. Uh, you, you had had the, the travel from, well, I don't know what, but, you know, as I recall, you like, bags had arrived. Right, 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 right. Uh, but there you were, regardless of uh, all the, the difficulties you ran into on your, your trip, making time to come out of your way and come visit. And uh, it was really fantastic. So thank you for those kind words. Thank you, guy. Thank it you. was an absolute honor and pleasure meeting Which you. Which we'll cherish for a lifetime, definitely. Likewise. And, and, and my hope. You know, as we were talking earlier before we went on air, my hope is to come out there to New Zealand and visit you. Definitely. And, uh, you know, at, at some point we'll figure out how to make that happen. I Definitely, would love to come guys. to New Zealand and, and meet. Certainly. We've got, yeah. We've got sure a lot of, that will happen soon. That will yeah, certainly happen. Yep. yep, yep. Yeah, we've got a lot of amazing um, allies in New Zealand that are part of the community here. Uh, yeah. I, I always joke when we start these off and say, you know, we've got people all over the world. And then, you know, usually like uh, right on cue, somebody will pop in and say, hey, it's you know me from New Zealand or Australia. And, and it's really great that we're able to kind of connect and, and collaborate and work together from across the world. So I look forward to that. I'm going to bring up on the screen your presentation. So you are sharing a presentation with us today. And, uh, you know, since we don't have a live audience, um, we're going to just kind of have you roll through your presentation and share with us, um, you know, your, your thoughts and your experience and your topic. And then of course, at the end, uh, I will reappear and no doubt probably have some questions or comments of my own and we'll have a little bit of a conversation and then we'll wrap things up. So with that, your, uh, your presentation is now on the screen and you should be able to control it. So I am going to, because people are here now to hear you talk, uh, I'm going to disappear and it will just be you. But I will tell you that while I'm disappeared, I will still be here. I will still be listening. And if you say, guy, and, and I know you're talking about me, not just some random guy, uh, I will reappear and um, um, help you if there's any problems or anything at all you need. So with that, thanks so much and take it away. Thank thanks, you. Scott. Thank you. Before we start, we also take this opportunity to express our heartfelt thanks and gratitude to all our mentors, in particular, Matua, Angus McFarlane and Sonia McFarlane um, from New Zealand, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Aotearoa is the Maori name for New Zealand. And Dr. Stephen Poges, Dr. Laurie Desitals, and acknowledge the work of all, <coughs> of all the pioneers in trauma-informed care practices. We have drawn on the expertise of our families and students, and we want to thank them all and also everyone who is here today. <clears throat> we would like to acknowledge uh, the traditional and ongoing custodians, past, present, and emerging of all our countries. We continue to grow because of the seeds you all had planted. Most importantly, 
we believe this presentation provides an opportunity for us to come together as a community, share and co-construct knowledge and information. So in this presentation, we would discuss about the importance of, as you see, cultural safety and the related terms such as cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity, cultural humility and epistemic injustice and how they can be applied across our educational settings. We explore from our own experiences uh, of how we can promote the mental health of our students through culturally responsive pedagogies, which aligns and incorporates trauma-informed care practices. So we shall start discussing about the concept of culture. So the word culture has a variety of meanings covering a very broad territory, very wide, broad territory. Culture is shared understandings, beliefs, values, social behavior, customs, and thoughts within a group of people. Culture, as you can see, is dynamic and mobile and just keeps changing over time for those individuals and also for those groups they belong into. In this period of globalization, cultural practices are continually shifting in order to adapt the new technology and the new situations and the new context as well. Take, for instance, for instance uh, the cell phone technology, with the usage being the highest in the Asian and African continents. So the culture of rural communities in those continents has naturally changed to accommodate these new technologies, while usage of postal services to communicate is almost non-existent these days. Cultural practices, they are learned behaviors that we pick up as we grow and choose to either adapt or leave them behind as we grow older. So that's a brief discussion about the concept of culture. Now, narrowing it down. So school culture we shall briefly look into the notion of school culture. A simple definition of school culture would be the way we do things around here in our school. So each school has a culture that's definitely their own. So on a broader note, school culture is a set of values, beliefs and norms that influence the way the teachers, the students, the parents and the whole community and the principals as well. Think, express, feel and behave in and out of the school compounds. School culture can be demonstrated through various, various ways. For example, through symbols, flags, uh, songs, uh, dressing, in particular the uniforms they wear, vision, mission and, and their core values, the school's core values as well. So school culture is mostly influenced by the school's students, the school students' social background. And for example, a school in, in an Islamic neighborhood might need the girls of that school to wear hijabs. You know, hijabs, they cover their face and the head to the schools the whole time they are there. A school's culture is important due, due to its strong impact on students, teachers, and of course, the administration and the whole community and the principals as well. So 
uh, having discussed about what a school culture is, what is a great school culture? So several researchers, they have studied the topic of what makes a great school culture? Samuel, Samuel Carter, who has done some extensive study about school culture, summarizes great school cultures are explicit about what is valued, about what is truly good, and about what they aim for. Through intentional practices and purposeful activities, they help the entire, entire community, not just their children, the entire community to strive in that direction. So now to the topic of cultural safety. Let's look at the origin, origin, where it originated from. The term cultural safety was coined by Maori nurse and scholar, Dr. Irihapati Ramston from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And the notion of cultural safety was developed in response to Maori discontent with medical care in New Zealand, which was right through 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. So Maori, as, as uh, we might know, are the indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand. So Dr. Irihapiti Ramston, she worked hard to challenge the view that everyone should be cared for in the same way, regardless of who they are. And eventually, the Nursing Council of New Zealand endorsed cultural safety as a requirement for nursing and, mid and midwifery education. We believe we believe the same principles uh, that are that are applied in the in the health practices can be applied to educational settings as well. So, what is what is cultural safety? Culturally safe practices are recognizing inequalities within the educational settings, our schools, our educational systems, by and large, challenging our own practices, assumptions, perceptions of diversity, and carefully examining our own biases and understanding and addressing the power imbalances that could exist within the system and accepting the differences and, and diversity that exist within the system. Cultural safety as a concept has been embraced by scholars in New Zealand and across the, across the ditch in Australia and Canada as well, and is in the process of gaining ground in the United States and, and other countries as well, where it could be useful in informing better pedagogical practices that could then enhance educational outcomes for vulnerable and marginalized students. So why is cultural safety important in promoting mental health, equity, diversity, and resilient minds in education settings? Culturally safe practices are about social justice, and therefore they are essential to achieve equity, improve educational outcomes, and for creating safe places that allow healing to happen. Within an education setting, this becomes all the more important, particularly for those already living on the margins of society influenced by dominant groups. In the absence of culturally safe practices, ethnocentrism may prevail, which may restrict the schools from engaging appropriately with our children and families. Therefore, 
cultural safety challenges us as educators to work collaboratively with our students and families from diverse cultures by using a student-centered approach, sharing respect, knowledge, experience, and empathy in relationships. While trauma is an experience that can impact all people globally, indigenous people experience trauma in distant ways that are linked to the experience of colonization, racism, discrimination, negative stereotyping, poverty, and ill health. One of the criticisms of the current trauma approaches is the limitation in regard to Western definitions of trauma. For example, DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, defines trauma as an exposure to actual or threatened death or serious injury or sexual violence. Indigenous researchers on trauma note that the definition only emphasizes individual and actual events for diagnostic purposes, and therefore it fails to account for long-term chronic and complex individual and collective trauma. The researchers add that they do not allow for experiences of historical trauma due to assimilative colonial practices which have occurred for indigenous populations worldwide. Therefore, to be truly culturally safe, a cultural shift is advocated for educators to identify culturally safe trauma-informed care practices to protect and embrace the holistic well-being of indigenous students who have suffered both personal, collective, and intergenerational trauma, which stems from their indigenous experiences of trauma. This can lead to collective and transformative change in their mental and overall holistic well-being. Unpacking culturally safe practices. We shall now start discussing about some culturally safe practices in schools. Providing culturally safe care is not a checklist approach and it does not have an endpoint. Becoming a culturally safe practitioner is an ongoing journey developing as one engages in deeper level of self-awareness and critical reflection of their own beliefs and values. It is also in recognizing and accepting the historical treatment of indigenous people and the influence that this has to ha uh, this continues to have on the present day so we believe overcoming our implicit bias is the first step implicit bias operates at the subconscious level, which is outside of a conscious level, and this has a direct influence on most human behavior. The nature of implicit bias is that we don't even know that we have it, and they are triggered through rapid and automatic mental associations, which we make between people, ideas, and objects in attitudes and stereotypes we hold about those people, ideas, and objects. Therefore, implicit bias is a concept that we as educators need to be aware of in our attempt to be culturally safe in our practices. Implicit biases can both, uh, can both be a preference or an aversion towards certain people or gro certain groups of people. They are unconsciously acquired by a person's exposure to explicit and implicit cultural messages via stereotype 
expressed and passed on either by family members, media, and other sources of knowledge and information. For example, studies have shown that teachers show implicit bias against their students of color, expecting them to misbehave more than the white students and therefore enacting harsher punishments if they are caught. Along with students of color, students of disabilities were also disproportionately disciplined. Example, as we can see, suspensions and expulsions and corporal punishments. So we really need to challenge ourselves. And it is important to examine our own biases and recognize how it impacts the education systems we serve. We might have implicit biases because of ethnicity, age, gender, appearance, sexual orientation, disability, socioeconomic status, religious beliefs, and for so many other reasons. Becoming conscious of these attitudes and biases is the first and foremost step towards change. Our first step is to accept that we could possibly have some uncon unconscious bias by acknowledging those feelings and move past them as no one is going to criticize us if we start this journey. On the contrary, there will be a lot of people who will encourage and support us in this amazing journey, which can be really an uplifting experience. For instance, when I was young, I had an unconscious bias against Europeans that they were dominant because I was raised in a family of freedom fighters in India who opposed colonization. I had my entire schooling in, an, uh, in a European convent where I always felt that I did not fit with them as I felt inferior to them, which affected the way I interacted with them. But many years later, when I went to law school and university, spending more time with my lecturers, friends and colleagues from dominant cultures, the way I was cared for and empowered made me recognize my own unconscious bias that not all dominant culture, cultural groups can be authoritative. This changed my whole perception about dominant cultural groups. I also want to share the narrative of my African-American friend. When this friend's son was in the final, call, uh, final year of college, the guidance counselor from a dominant culture had asked him what his goal was to become, for which my friend's son had enthusiastically shared that he wanted to become a doctor. Sadly, the response from this guidance counselor was, well, that's a big dream. Let's look at something realistic. At this moment, this boy's aspiration crumbled and his self-esteem was trampled. And as a self-guidance -guide, counselor, did not believe him and he could not accept the fact that he wanted to be a doctor. What was saddening was, it seems the counselor did not even investigate this boy's academic records. And today, several years later, his mom shared that this counselor was proved wrong as her son is now a qualified doctor. Unfortunately, my friend's son's story still repeats globally with many of our students from diverse cultures where their dreams and goals are crushed. The world uh, may have changed, but the implicit biases on students of color and those with disability are that they are intellectually inferior. But at the same time, we believe there is hope what is done can be undone because our brain is malleable. They have the incredible capacity for growth and change. 
focusing our, on our implicit bias will help in recognizing the significant um, amount of harm that stems from implicit bias. But sadly, yet we focus more on the explicit forms of the bias. Sarah Fierman, who have done extensive research on this concept, points out that educators need to name implicit or unconscious bias rather than denying it, denying its existence before identifying ways to address it and to hold ourselves accountable. We need a prevention approach and being aware of our own implicit biases can give that. The next process or practice would be moving beyond the position of cultural neutrality. Educators frequently use their own cultural values and points of views to relate and engage with others. Many educators report that they do not discriminate against people and treat all people the same, regardless of ethnicity or race. However, this color blindness approach may seem to reject racism. It allows the dominant culture to ignore racism and discrimination. The position of cultural neutrality while perpetuating impartiality actively supports the status quo. Hence, adopting a culturally neutral or a colorblind approach invalidates negative racial experiences, cultural perspectives, and traumatic histories. Some authors call this position as delusion of neutrality. So, <clears throat> cultural awareness. So cultural awareness is another practice or process. So, so the fact that we are, we are discussing about implicit bias and moving beyond uh, the cultural neutrality, now cultural awareness and the other concepts which we are about to discuss now. So uh, they are not standalone practices. Uh, we believe they all should be integrated together and apply as one approach, crushed together. To be, to be a culturally safe practitioner, all these concepts should be integrated into, into one practice. So, uh, cultural awareness. So, cultural awareness is another practice or process which is, uh, which is an understanding, basically one's understanding about the differences. So, cultural awareness entails an understanding about cultural elements like, you know, food habits within certain cultures, dress codes, uh, music, religious practices, rituals, uh, social protocols, and so on. There are so many, so many things which could be unique uh, to to a particular culture. So cultural awareness, it's 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 learned over time. It just develops over time. We are not born with that knowledge. Uh, so um, it's important that we get an, a good understanding of those different elements, which are quite unique and specific to different cultures. For example, an awareness about Hindus. Uh, we do not eat beef and Muslims, they, they do not eat pork. For us, beef, it, it's sacred. So we, wor we worship cows as, as God, um, as, as a sacred being which produces milk, our, our day -to -day, um, which, which, which is for our day-to-day -day living. So, so Hindus do not eat beef. And there, there are other religious, religious reasons for Muslims not eating 
pork. The same way, um, Sikhs, Sikhs, uh, majority of the Sikhs uh, are from a state called Punjab, which is in north, north, north of India. So they have moved across to Canada, and and many Sikhs they live in Great Britain as in in uh, in UK as well. So they you might have seen they wearing turbans, turbans over their heads, which are practices which are quite unique to those those um, uh, their religion. And there are so many other aspects which which uh, if we dig in, we, we we would be surprised, which are so unique and specific to each culture. So uh, cultural sensitivity is another another aspect which would which would form part of this approach. So with this process, we move on from awareness to acceptance. So cultural sensitivity requires us to accept accept that there are multiple worldviews, beliefs, and practices. So the first point is being aware of it and moving on to accepting them. So accepting that there are multiple worldviews, beliefs, and practices that everyone is entitled to hold and no cultural group should be privileged over another. So uh, communicating with cultural sensitivity with the students and their families in an educational settings, uh, it involves active listening with our hearts and not just ears and engaging in open and compassionate communication by being mindful of our tone, intonation, uh, body language, which are very important when, when you talk to those students and parents. Uh, I will share an example recently uh, about cultural act, uh, awareness and cultural sensitivity. So the other day I was in a classroom. So that day uh, um, was, it happened to be, um, it, was, it was Moharam. Moharam, also known as Moharam uh, Ul-Haram. Uh, it marks the beginning of the Islamic year. Uh, so the classroom teacher, uh, she knew that it was Moharam and she went and wished an Islamic parent for Moharam who came in to drop her child. So uh, as you might know, with Muslims, there are Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. So while for Sunni Muslims, this is a day of celebrations, for Shia Muslims, this is a day of mourning as they mourn the death of a grandson of an of a, um, Islamic prophet. So though the teacher, she did some research and, and with good intentions, uh, she had wished the mother, I noticed uh, the mother's you know, uh, face, uh, it, it, it changed slightly. And, and, and she was, I, I thought she felt a bit sad uh, when the teacher had wished her. So later, when the mom was about to leave, I just approached her and had uh, introduced myself because I was there in the classroom, uh, but I haven't seen that mother before. So I just introduced myself and had a little chat with the mother uh, and, and um, it just went on. And, and I came to know that she was uh, a Shia Muslim and, and she felt a bit sad about the teacher wishing her. Uh, I, I explained to the mother about the teacher's good intention and also later um, to the teacher about the significance of Moharam to Shia Muslims. Uh, so for, for culturally safe practices, a little research and, and some background knowledge about the child and the family would have made a huge difference on that day. Yeah, and I think uh, it's crucial, like uh, even being mindful of the 
uh, eye contact thing too. I just wanted to add because certain cultures uh, feel it's rude if you deeply look into their eyes. And and coming back to the scenario which you mentioned, I feel the teacher's real good intention was sadly not recognized because of the lack of uh, doing a little bit more of research on cultural she education. was good at heart, yeah, she, good at heart. she meant to meant to wish yeah. genuinely honestly. honestly and we know that they had the best interest but unfortunately the scenario it was yeah, mistaken yeah. yeah so cultural sensitivity and moving on to from cultural sensitivity to cultural humility holding cultural humility is another process and is defined as having an interpersonal taking an interpersonal stance that is other oriented rather than self-focused so this is char characterized by respect and lack of superiority towards one's own cultural background and experience so so someone might be part of the 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 mainstream culture or the dominant culture in the classroom rather than then um thinking that you know everything uh, or we know rather everything um, um, being humble and showing that humility is part of this approach so cultural humility entails having a respectful and inquisitive approach whereby educators they seek knowledge from their students and their parents and their families regarding their cultural and structural influences rather than assuming or, or thinking that they are the experts or are assuming expertise about a culture outside of their own operating with with an assumption about other cultures as mira was saying earlier could lead to holding uncon unconscious bias towards certain groups for example there are some existing discourses about uh, migrants and refugees the majority of them uh, who uh, moved from um, war torn uh, middle eastern countries and a majority of them who are Muslims, there, there are some discourses around around, around um, the, the people who are seeking refugee status. So uh, attaining cultural humility is not a goal. It, it, it's an active process, an ongoing way of being in the world and being in relationship with others and also being with the self. I just want to add on to the cultural humility here. That was, uh, I, I'm remembered about the Maori uh, worldview concepts of ako, which means uh, the teachers being the learner, and you teach and learn, and seeing your child and the family as an expert. So you learn from them about their lived experiences and their culture, and that way that reciprocity is shown so you, you, in, in certain contexts yeah. you are a learner yeah, yeah. in other contexts context, you, you are the teacher you so share your knowledge that's your, that's what yeah, yeah yeah that's so that united approach so i just wanted to share that we embrace that concept throughout our practice all the time and yeah. we, we we learn from each, each other, other in as much we share our knowledge yeah. we also seek that knowledge actively yes. seeking that knowledge that, from others also addresses the power in uh, imbalances because we show that we are all equal and we see our children as a whole holistic individual and we don't see them and treat them as someone who's below yeah. so we used to uh, treat them with equity as an 
separate, unique individual. That sits so well within yeah. this cultural humility yeah. aspect, yeah. you know, uh, that you are an yeah. active seeker of knowledge rather than you are up in the front and you are there to spread what you know, you know, to your students. And, and it, it's like a it's like a social constructive mm -hmm. approach. You know, you yeah. construct knowledge from different sources out there in the context. And it's just not you are the source of knowledge. Exactly. And I, it also reminds me that as teachers, it's always good to get to the eye level, knee level of the children's level. So you show that your presence is visible and that connection is happening there rather than you standing as a tall person and the children talking, looking. <laughs> looking up. So I will and I like that particularly in early childhood settings where especially teacher, children, children in that age group. group you get down to their level and your presence and body tone I mean your it, it sets posture. up you know for the for to, the for that yeah. uh, interaction that, yeah. that lovely and lively interaction that's about, about to happen. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. So this 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 discussion nicely flows into our our next uh, concept, which is which is called epistemic injustice. Epistemic injustice, uh, the term as such was coined by Professor Miranda Fricker in 1998, 1990s. I think it's 1998, which loosely speaking refers to an injustice done to someone as a knower or 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 as a person. Uh, as a transmitter of knowledge in simple words someone someone is unfairly judged to not to have the knowledge epistemology as as we know is the theory of knowledge with questions in the form of who is the knower is the teacher up in the front is that is the teacher the only person in the classroom who is the knower i would think we would think certainly not what is the source? What is a valid source of knowledge? So Miranda, Miranda Fricker, she just questioned that that source in epistemology, in the theory of epistemology. So epistemic injustice, according to Fricker, results when people with more social power being assigned a greater degree of credibility against people with less social power being assigned a lesser degree of credibility. In educational settings, yeah, it, it happens quite a lot. Epistemic injustice would involve devaluing a teacher or a student's capacity to possess or generate knowledge based on, you know, high identity prejudice that can that can relate to factors like race, gender, accent, and age as well. So, for example, male teachers um, who are dominant by numbers in a secondary school uh, rejecting a female female colleague's suggestions. When a teacher or a student is harmed in their capacity as a knower, it can damage their agency and also it, it can certainly lead to marginalization. So, Professor Fricker identifies two forms of epistemic injustice. So testimonial and hermeneutical. Testimony as such involves uh, someone sharing the knowledge with someone else. You might have heard of people, you know, as past lawyers, we have, we have, been, we have been part of many testimonies which have been given in court. Uh, you might have heard people giving their testimony in the, in the witness box, standing in the witness box and, and sharing as to what had happened for which uh, they were part of or something 
that are, that they have heard so that's a testimony a statement rather so you might have heard people giving their testimony a student a teacher or a teacher aide or a parent suffers from testimonial injustice when their testimony their sharing of knowledge is judged to be not credible or less credible not only children's testimonies in those instances but also their interpretative frameworks their thinking processes are at risk of rejection by adults you are just cutting them off you are suppressing their voice i just wanted to add uh, to this when you said about teacher aides and teachers um, i mean parents sharing with in a group i once remember one of the uh, support teacher teacher aide say i am only a teacher aide mm. so that shows how she felt her voice was not heard so we had to say that power struggle pa that power imbalance that you can see that's prevailing in that system. system so she felt that her voice is not equal or valid as the hierarchy of the group is so many of us feel that we are only this we are only parent we are only a uh, teacher right? so we are made to the system makes us feel that way yeah. it's it's not that you know it's something they are born with yeah. this is the interactions the way they are being treated makes them feel that way yeah. that's that's from my experience yeah and i think that so we as educators have a real accountability and responsibility to make that real shift to make them feel that they have the voice equally they have the knowledge knowledge and see them as expertise with the thing certainly, and that's why certainly. ieps can be certainly sometime intimidating individual education yeah uh, uh, yeah individual education plans could be intimidating for many of our parents and they they don't want to come because of seeing the whole bunch of people wearing different experts expert had <laughs> saying i'm from the ministry of education and i'm so and so and you feel so small as a parent thinking that you're not valid even though you're the expert of your you own are the expert there. yeah the child but you're made to feel that you're just there to be be the receiver of the news passed on and information no passed real yeah. consultation so i think all this would be a, a a good thing for us to take on and reflect consider it's an ongoing uh, yeah. in um inquisitive approach yeah. you know constantly yeah. reflecting self reflecting so on again, our own practices uh, yeah. validating multiple perspectives it's okay to disagree but it's important to validate and listen empathetically to perspectives different from our yeah absolutely yeah. so as an example we shall consider an assault incident reported that had happened in the playgrounds in a school during the lunch break so a student from a marginalized group is a victim of a physical attack by another student from a dominant group just just an example so two witnesses the principal um, is seeking some statement as to uh, learn about what really happened there so two witnesses one from the marginalized group and another one student from the dominant group uh, give contra contradicting statements about what had actually happened there about who the perpetrator is in majority of the incidents uh, testimony of students from marginalized groups they are quietened invalidated interrupted and intro distorted in 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 our schools so it these type of experiences it can cause crippling and entrenched feelings of negative self worth in those students 
they also suppress their voice we are also actively suppressing their voice and they're as we were sharing before their interpretative capacities so that that's testimonial injustice uh, which according to professor fricker happens a lot not in just educational settings across other 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 areas as well so the other form hermeneutical injustice is about the prejudice that's caused due to someone's inability to fully understand or communicate an experience hermeneutics as we know is about the theory of interpretation so it, it a nice example and um, would be from the women's liberation movement in the us in, from the 1970s so wendy sanford from princeton new jersey she suffered severe depression following the birth of a, of a son she constantly felt blamed blamed by her husband blamed by herself uh, she had no way of explaining or even conceptualizing conceptualizing her experiences she didn't know what was happening what was going on in her mind and in her body only when she shared her feelings in a women's workshop later did the concept of postpartum depression became known to her so this was relatively a new concept this this concept of postpartum depression in 1970s even even to medical health professionals uh, even the mental health professionals at that time she then found that she had a new way to make sense of her experiences and communicate her, the way she felt her body felt to other people so wendy sanford in that case that was in those beginning stages was hermeneutically disadvantaged in not being able to name her difficulties as postpartum depression so in schools in many schools we have students you know um, just migrating from another country who speak a different language uh, who absolutely have no mainstream language or or do not have the uh, background knowledge uh, to understand you know incidents like uh, uh, cyber bullying or even verbal bullying because they don't have that language they would find it difficult to convey their thoughts to the the teachers or the teacher aides or or any adult who is present so this form of injustice uh, professor F uh, miranda fricker calls as hermeneutic injustice as i was sharing before so as a way out trusting one another and having open and respectful responsive and and reciprocal interactions without prior judgments and and also being mindful of being cognizant of those um implicit biases would address these forms of epistemic injustices so finally to the concept of uh cultural idioms the term idioms of distress ref refers to the varieties of ways people express their distress in different settings so in any given culture children and parents have their own ways of expressing their distress such idioms can be can be misunderstood when they are interpreted literally transcultural psychiatrists they suggest educators need to attend to both denotative and connotative meanings of language the styles of emotion expression and linguistic idioms denotation is when they mean what they say literally the word what it means 
connotation is created when they mean something else. There is something hidden there. So children may use, as you know, children always, they, they just copy moral as to what they hear from their adults, parents. So they may use their own cultural idioms, learn from their adults at home to express their distress. So some example, it is really important that, that teachers gain some understanding at least about these cultural idioms. Some examples of cultural idioms include in New Zealand, we have we have a large number of students from Syria and Afghanistan and Iran uh, given refugee status in the last few years. Who might say the following? Uh, a student with uh, some suicidal thoughts would say, itmana namma fik, which means literally, I wish to sleep and not wake up. That's the exact meaning of it. But it's important to understand the mental state of these students, which could be suicidal. And as the as a, as literally this idiom would mean that they are very tired and would like to sleep. So another one, Kamatni uh, Kalbi, which literally means in the literal sense, my heart is squeezing. However, it conveys a state of worry. If the literal meaning is taken, this could be mistaken for a heart attack. Haiti, students from Haiti, um, Creole, Creole is their language. Who could say Ted party for forgetfulness? The literal meaning of Ted party is my head has left, but they just use that for, for just conveying, oh, I just forgot. So those cultural idioms, even in our language, mm -hmm. we, we speak a language called Tamil. Ayo talaye, sorry for using <laughs> Tamil here. Which means my head is about to explode, which literally means I'm in a kind of a tight moment, a, a distress at this point. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. So it is it is really important to gain some understanding of this intended meanings of the idioms of distress for, for culturally safe practices. To, for example, to get a better understanding of idioms. Uh, of distress, one of the teachers, we work across as special education advisors, we work across uh, with schools in uh, Singapore, India, Malaysia, and U U United Arab Emirates. So one of the teachers uh, in a school in Singapore, she, she uses a Google translator because she has got many children in her classroom uh, from, from different cultures. She uses a Google translator and has discussions. If she notices something different, she just has uh that open communication and honest communication with the families to ensure that the children are safe and well so now finally we would like to share how we implemented culturally safe and trauma informed care practices in aotearoa new zealand by using both the neuroscience lens and the indigenous perspectives so we have uh, made a so Treaty of Waitangi is the founding document of Aotearoa New Zealand based on, I mean, it was signed between the Crown and the Maori chiefs back in 1840. So that was the base, that was the founding document. And it has three principles, partnership, protection, and participation. And we have shown in this uh, PowerPoint, like how the tenets of neuroscience and Treaty of Principles align and how we implemented culturally safe practices. So firstly, we took into account the historical and indigenous bicultural context of Aotearoa New Zealand. 
Then we incorporated the principles of Treaty of Waitangi, which is a founding document of New Zealand, by valuing indigenous Maori worldviews of trauma, mental health, well-being, and healing practices. Most importantly, we considered our own beliefs, history, and life experiences that can impact our learners. We constantly strive and build genuine and respectful partnerships and connections and commitments with our Maori students and their whānau families, Hapu and Iwi tribe by protecting Kaupapa Maori protocols, which is tikanga, for example, Kapahaka and Poi, which is a traditional Maori performing art forms of dance and chanting. And we use Fakapapa genealogy, Raranga, that refers to weaving using harakeke, which is a flat plant that is at the heart of Maori weaving, which also symbolizes family and stress the importance of the plant in Maori life. We, 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 we are using Maori terms here. So Fano is for families. Yeah. Uh, Fakapapa, which is so significant within Maori culture, stands for the genealogy. Uh, so um, Raranga, which means weaving, uh, which is which is a very um, significant cultural art for Maori. They use uh, harakeke, which is a plant, uh, and it is a sacred plant. Even before cutting the plant, they have to say a karakia, a prayer, before they cut the plant and use it for weaving. And kapahaka is a traditional cultural art uh, in Maori culture. So we am, thank you for um, explaining that. We embrace the Maori worldview concept of Ako, which we discussed earlier, which refers to the traditional Maori reciprocal relationship where the educator is also learning from the student, meaning both teaching and learning. And we valued Kanohi Kirtia, which refers to scene phase, which uh, stresses the importance of educators having face-to-face -face interactions with their families and their children. We valued and normalized Tereo, which is a Maori language, and used Vayata, which means the traditional Maori songs and chants in our day-to-day -day connections with our students. We empowering our Maori students to take pride and ownership of their land, language, culture, identity, learning, and active empathetic listening to their voices and stories enhance their self-esteem, which is mana and sense of agency. It also paved way for restoring safety, re-establishing trust, and promoting resilient minds and predictability. Which is so important. Yeah. And we valued strength-based holistic approaches that supported co-regulatory practices by taking culture into account and at the same time being aware of our own and collective nervous systems. That is so important, recognizing the adult nervous system. Mm -hmm. So we stay calm and uh, composed when we are in that space, when we are interacting with a child who could be dysregulated. So be, not being reactive, but rather being, being responsive. proactive yep. and responsive. So we implemented the Kaupapa Maori cultural framework the Hikairo schema, uh, which we were honored to be a part of the advisory group with Matwa Angus McFarlane and Sonia McFarlane, which is grounded in racial equity and and cultural responsiveness. Our mentors. <laughs> yeah, and proud to say they are our mentors. Mentors and uh, uh, consultation and their guidance is what keeps us really feel to that they are day. on the right path till this day. So we really uh, owe this 
to our uh, all our mentors. So honoring the collective wisdom and cultural and community specific strategies for coping and maintaining well-being supported us to learn about the funds of knowledge and explore the culturally specific healing and wellness practices and strategies that our students and Fano families bring into our classrooms. And this validated their lived experiences. We embedded Maori folk tales, myths, and legends and uh, psychoeducation to help uh, our students understand what's happening in our bodies and minds to build resilience and hope. There are so many Maori folk tales. They are historical tales called Purako in Maori. And they are passed got so much history. message in them. You learn so much when you yeah. read a story, when you read a Purako with a child. And they are really like a gift Taonga passed on. Taonga is a gift which is passed, passed on, on over generations, generations by your ancestors. So, so in, in Maori mythology, we walk into the future with our back to the future. You always look into your back and you walk the other way so that you just keep learning from your past. past. Embracing the past is uh, really important. So we ran informal workshops for our families Fano, by embedding a cultural lens at the same time applying educational neuroscience AEN, to help understand the importance of regulating adult nervous system before striving to support our children. So helping, enabling our, uh, and empowering our Fano to understand why certain things are happening and how we can overcome that. So that's how our journey started and it's still it's, an it's ongoing. ongoing. And as we said, there's no end point. And we believe it's in inquiry-based inquiry based with collaboration with our children, Fano and communities. So we are really blessed to be in this uh, amazing ongoing journey. And so the, the important source uh, from whom we learn from every day, they are there in the classrooms. They are our children. Tamariki, as we call them in Maori. And Mokapuna. Mokapuna. So they are the one significant source of what we just keep learning every day. And I also want to acknowledge Dr. Yui Brown from Menners thing. Every child needs a special person. And likewise, all human beings need that social connection. And that's so really important for all our Absolutely. well-being. And because we are wired for social connections. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, concluding thoughts. So, over the years of our experiences as lawyers, uh, special advisors to many schools in India, Singapore, Malaysia, and United Arab Emirates, and, and special educators in autism, and aspiring educational psychologists and learning support coordinators, which is our, our work today, we are constantly reminded that the deepest and most consistent pain for our students uh, comes from the lack of felt safety, belonging and disconnection. So moving beyond awareness of unconscious bias and implicit associations to long-term bias reversal and inclusive behaviors requires changing in organizational practices. It, it, it may start from us, but the change should happen as a whole. So organizational behaviors, uh, practices, plus practical interventions to address personal biases and embrace proactive approaches to working with people who are different from the majority group. 
Through this presentation, we hope educators could develop a set of culturally safe practices, um, examine previously held knowledge, uh, uh, beliefs, attitudes, and understandings, and develop readily transferable skills for practice in any setting. We would like to finish with a quote from Dr. Atul Gawande, uh, an American researcher, surgeon, and presently the assistant administrator of the United States Agency for International Development for Global Health. Better is possible. It does not take genius. It takes diligence. It takes moral clarity. It takes ingenuity. And above all, it takes a willingness to try. Thank you and namahi. Let the uniqueness of the child guide us in Amahi, and we believe uh, Mahi's work, and we believe change begins with us, and we need to be the change agents, the change we wanted to see. So thank you all for being with us today, and we feel so honored, and we are truly, truly grateful to each and every one of you. We learn from you, and we grow from you. Thank you. Thank and you. Thank you once again, Guy, for giving us this incredible opportunity. Valuable opportunity. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and thank you. So I've magically appeared here and I'm going to I'm going to make your uh, screen go away. But before I do, uh, I, I loved where you uh, where you close this. And, um, you know, there, there, there's something that you've probably heard me say a lot. And, you know, certainly I'm not the, the only one to say this, but, you know, one of our strong values, you know, here is about when we know better, we do better. And and, you know, um, it's important. I mean, this work is sometimes hard work and we're sometimes pointing to things that aren't working and saying we've got to do better. Uh, and it's easy to kind of look at that and take that internally to, to, as criticism, but it's, it's really not. It's about all of us. We're all on a journey. Uh, I am further along on my journey than I was a month ago or a year ago or five years ago. Um, but I'm constantly uh, trying to, to learn and, and again, do better. Uh, and uh, I think that takes a lot of courage. So I'm going to make your screen go away here, and we can we can chat for a second, and uh, uh, certainly uh, I'll let you go here. So if you want to, you're more than welcome to close your presentation. Uh, I've moved that, and, and now you can see me again. And I know it's a little, um, a little strange when you're presenting to uh, what seems like an abyss sometimes as you're just looking at your screen and don't know that anybody's there. But I assure you that uh, as we air this uh, in about a week, that we're going to have people watching it. And uh, my hope is always not only watching it, but but reflecting on it, sharing it. Uh, part of the reason we do these events is we really do want to encourage people not only to attend them, but to share them with others. And, you know, as I reflect on kind of that that closing statement that you gave and, you know, kind of our, our kind of guiding uh, philosophy here around kind of doing better, uh, so much of what you talked about today is really about that journey. And uh, again, this is not not intended to be critical of ourselves. Uh, we have to give ourselves grace, but at the same point, we, we've got to grow. So really yeah. inspiring. Um, I, I've taken some notes and probably have a couple of questions for you as well. Um, but that was a fantastic presentation. And, and by the way, I have to say that uh, I, I actually really like the way you two present together because you you have a really great um, dynamic and energy. And, mm. and uh, you know, that, that, that's a, a, a true testament because, you, know, uh, you know, my wife and I, we, we might not present so well, but, but you know, uh, the, the two of you are, are amazing together. And, uh, you know, you can definitely feel that. So um, let me just kind of get to a couple of questions. I, I took some notes as we went, and uh, a lot of them were just kind of um, 
uh, reflecting on on some of the things that you shared and that you said, or just that um, you know stuck out to me. And one of the first things that I wrote down was uh, you know that story about the guidance counselor, uh, you know, saying, "Hey, well, let's be more realistic." Uh, and it, it just really hit me because how many times, um, you know, are we, um, you know, saying things and, and doing things to kids that, that really uh, are harmful and can hurt. And, and you know, uh, and again, it's not always a matter of intention, uh, but the impact, you know, uh, and I think always being mindful of, you know, um, you know, is our intent being reflected in our impact is, is really, really critical. And, and I thought about that statement, of course, you know, there's a part of me that felt a little angry. Uh, there was a part of me that, you know, just really felt uh, upset by it. But I think, again, um, you know, <laughs> you know, this is about, you know, change and this is about support and this is about even realizing uh, the impact of things that, you know, as you talked about, you know, why some of these things happen that, that we're not even aware, you know, we're not even aware that some of these things are happening. So uh, that, that story just, um, you know, kind of really hit me. And, and, uh, and I loved, of course, to hear now that the, the, the son is a doctor uh, and uh, let no one, let no one uh, stop any well, of us from following a dream, a feeling, you know, um, I grew up, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, gosh, uh, 53 now. Uh, and I grew up in a time where, you know, oftentimes our, our parents and our families, and of course this can vary by, by culture, by uh, many things, but we're encouraging and pushing us in various directions. You know, you, you should do this, you should do that, you know, uh, here, here are respectable, you know, things that you should study. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've become the father that says, follow the thing that you love, follow the thing that excites you, follow your dream, you know, um, and, and and maybe it's just that that lesson that I've kind of learned, which is, um, you know, it really is about at the end of the day, um, doing something that's meaningful to you. And, um, yeah, yeah. So so I, I, I felt that and heard that, but that story just really hit me from so many perspectives. Uh, you know, a little bit of uh, frustration and 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 whatnot in here, but but then that hope of think yeah. thinking about those words so i, I i'm just recalling a, a, a proverb it's called tirukkural in our language tamil which goes this way teenal suttapun ullarum aarade naavinal suttavadu which means a scar or or um, any injury even from a fire burn would just go away in years but arade navinal suttavadu but a scar you make or you 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 just inflict. inflict on other person through your tongue will never go away mm-hmm. it just stays with them forever right, 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 right. so it's just you know implies how how mindful and careful you are you should right. be uh, when when you use your words and also right. i wanted to add guy thank you for the deep reflection i truly uh, think like many of um, um, my families and friends have sh- uh, shared like from other cultures for, uh, for example if they go into a uni in our lecture room they would be made even by the looks what are you doing in a master's class so how come like surprising look whether it's intentional or unintentional but the look makes you feel so uncomfortable and you obviously as a person from a color you feel you're out of pl- place and mm-hmm. our fire mentor um, Sonia McFarlane always says you don't need to have words some 
times you feel the that, vibe. That vibe that, that, you, you, that as a person is, you mm -hmm. feel that you don't belong there the sense right. of belonging is lacking so it, you can obviously feel and likewise our children would feel from our teachers tone body language they don't need to even use the look they give at you from a student who's different they can make you feel low yeah 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 well and, and i think anytime that uh, anyone um you know, says something about something that we're already mindful of or already feel or already have been harmed by, um, the impact is so great. You know, uh, you know, if, if you have a feeling going into something that, that you have doubts or you feel like you don't belong, you know, to have that, um, you know, affirmed in some way by someone, I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine much more painful than that. And, um, you know, Valjay, I love the the saying that you shared. Of course, I will not try to to say that back in because <laughs> you know I I don't think I would be able to do, get all the pronunciation right there. But but perhaps at some point uh, you can you can send it to me in uh, in print. I'd love to see that. I, I love that. Um, yeah, but you know, absolutely. I mean, these things that you know we, we've experienced and and lived through. The the other thing that you were saying here, something just kind of lit off with me because one of the things that you're doing is you're taking this neuroscience piece and you're taking it in in with this. And you know, I was thinking, Mary, as you were talking about like the things we say and the impact, and then I was thinking about like go, let's go a step further than that. You know, um, one of the things that uh, you know we we would probably uh, very readily agree on is the fact that when we become dysregulated, when our stress levels are high and, and we become dysregulated, that's manifest in a lot of different ways. But uh, I don't know a human alive that hasn't in a moment of dysregulation when, you know, uh, they are really feeling dysregulated. They are certainly not in a, a state of homeostasis. They are under a lot of stress. It is those moments where we often say things that we would not in our right mind say. And of course, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint, I mean, we can kind of understand why we know when we become dysregulated, what's happening with our cortex, what's happening in terms of us being, uh, you know, in a state where we're really responding more from a, you know, uh, a limbic or, a, you know, a, you know, amygdala and, and, you know, kind of these, these responses. Um, but if anything, you know, while that shows the connection, because, you know, our, if our, if our likelihood of saying something could be very harmful when we are in a dysregulated state and knowing the impact that that can have, it really underscores the importance of self-regulation, of co-regulation, of, of all of these things that we might talk about in the context of uh, educational neuroscience. Um, the ability to be tuned in and, and understand our own thoughts feelings sensations what is it like when we become dysregulated because again as, as uh you know Balji said so so well uh you know that damage can last a lifetime so uh, i i love that intersection you bring into this discussion because i don't think it's something i've heard really brought into this discussion uh and, and again you know i know you have mentors that uh, probably have been bringing some of this in but but i've not really heard this uh, before and and I appreciate it because I, it really does make you think that you know um, uh, I, I happen to be a big fan of uh, Dr. Stuart Schenker's work um, and in fact had the opportunity last night he joined us for a book study we've been doing. Happy birthday! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, to to hear what he has to share about this, but that idea of self reg, that idea of you know stress and the impact that stress can have on on us. Uh, and when you align that with, um, 
you know, why cultural safety matters. Um, you know, yeah. So anyway, I, all of that is just to say it's genius the way that you're pulling this together. And I think it's really meaningful. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the, um, uh, the way you've, you've, I, I always love the, the, the incident Dr. Stuart Shankar shares, um, you know, uh, when uh, he and his dog, they almost got drowned and, and, and they, they barely made it to the shore. And, and uh, Dr. Shankar's son, who saw this, came running towards them and, and, and uh, Dr. Shankar was relieved. Ah, uh, he noticed and he's, he's just coming to, you know, save us, rescue mm -hmm. us. And, and uh, he ran straight to the dog. <laughs> and he just ignored Dr. Shankar. He used to finally share this incident, you know, in all his, in all his webinars and presentations. And he used to have such a big laugh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no. He's absolutely got amazing stories, but but I think you know again, you know, our state of of dysregulation and our ability to understand the importance of stress and how it impacts us and the importance of regulation, because it all relates. This all relates, you know. Uh, the the anger and the hate that you sometimes hear, um, again, it's this deep state of dysregulation, and 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 sometimes comes from. Uh, places that you know, uh, you know, even the the people that seem very aggressive about these things are really in a place of fear and dysregulation. And uh, you know, <laughs> um, I, I think back to Stephen Porges and, and think about you know the the thing he often says is if you want to make the world a better place, you start by making everybody feel safer, right? Yeah, um, and, and, and that's really key, I think, too, when we're talking about you know, cultural safety, when we're talking about inclusion, when we're talking about, you know, because when people perceive threats, even when they're not, um, my grandfather used to say that, um, that, um, you know, perception is nine tenths of reality. Uh, there are a lot of faulty perceptions based on many things. And, and Mira, I love that you were sharing your own kind of, you know, background and, 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 you know, your, your, you know, when you were in school and yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really critical, critical work here. Um, and, and you touched on some things that I think are topics here a lot. Um, and again, you know, expectations, it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, uh, race and religion and, and many differences. But, you know, of course, we work commonly in kind of um, neurodiversity, you know, individuals that are neurodivergent and, you know, being wired differently, thinking differently. Um, you know, when, even when you were talking about like cultural differences, like eye contact, well, from a, uh, a neurodivergent perspective, like eye contact may be physically painful, um, yes. you know, and, and the way that you, you shared that. And, and, and what I, what I heard and what I gathered from a lot of what you were saying was, um, you know, it really is about taking the time to know better. You know, you know, you mentioned kind of like it's okay to disagree, but we should validate others. And um, this has been a, a fantastic um, presentation. And what I love again that the two of you together just really created a, a great dynamic with this. Um, so let me let me ask you just a, a question. So someone joining us to watch this. Uh, and they're going to be watching on another day, but somebody watching this live right now or watching this later back on YouTube that says like, yeah, you know, th this all resonates with me. I want to do better. Where do I start? Um, you know, what, what would you say to somebody that, that, you know, is, is realizing that, gee, you know, 
Um, and again, a lot of it's well-intentioned. You know, you talked about neutrality and moving beyond neutrality. And that's such a big point because people, how, how often did we hear things like, well, I treat everybody the same. I don't see this. I don't see that. Which, of course, you know, you you see, you perceive, you have, you know, bias, you have uh, experiences that, you know, all of these things exist. Uh, you know, we, we certainly when, um, you know, there was a lot of, I think, uh, positive um, efforts around pointing out some of these issues. I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter uh, work that was being done and people said, well, all lives matter. Well, you know, this idea again that, you know, and, and there was always that analogy that I thought was really good. And it was kind of like, um, well, of course, yeah, yeah, all lives matter. But, you know, um, it was a house on fire kind of analogy that, you know, uh, a, a fire truck doesn't come spray down every house on the block. Uh, it goes to where there's a fire. We, we need to put our attention, you know, where there are our issues. And, you know, again, even with good intentions and, and feeling like, well, I'm a good person. I I'm neutral, you know. Uh, so so tell me, I, I know I'm ba- you know j- jabbering on a little bit here. But what what do you say to somebody that's like, you know, this resonates with me? I hear it. Where do I start? So so we would suggest if 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 uh, that person is a classroom teacher, go back into your classroom. Think about all your students. How far, how well do you know about each and every one of your students? So so um, what what thinking? I wouldn't. We wouldn't even start with biases. What thinking you have about each one of those students' background? the way they dress up, the religion they belong to, uh, the way they eat, the way they dress up. What what thoughts do you have in your minds? You're holding thoughts. And then uh, reflect on those thoughts and see if they are positive or negative or if those thoughts are in any way interfering with the way you engage or the way, the, the perception you have about the child. So basically, it also starts with, as we said before, guy with self-awareness, getting to know your uh, learner, plus being aware of when you start reflecting, you become more aware in a deeper level of critical thinking. Why, uh, it, your intention may be good, but unintentionally, as we say, the subconscious, unconscious uh, level what thoughts were you holding and how was it? Because we often are, we are quick to just. The next moment we start judging. Judging people right, like right, it's right, basic right. human tendency. That's, it could be for protection or it could be for our survival. Any reason, as soon as we see a person, our brain is ticking like, oh, is this person, am I, can he be trusted or is he going to harm me? So many things are happening at the same time. So, But when we take time to reflect, that's where we get become conscious of how we can i'll just share an example about like uh, a, f- a few weeks ago i i went into a school for for a pd for a professional development workshop on a saturday uh so so the school was closed uh, the the head teacher or the principal who opened the door for me um the moment she saw me uh she asked uh, where do i sign because many of many of the indians in new zealand uh, they run courier business. Mm. The moment she saw me, she saw me. She thought I was there to deliver a package. So the next question she wa- asked was, "Where do I sign? Where's the package?" Mm. 
Mm. Uh, sorry, ma'am, I'm here to, you know, here for the workshop. You know, that, that, that I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, it is a negative right. bias, right. but, but her internal mindset that right. Indians, right. Right. Uh, they, they are mm. here, he's here mm. to deliver a package. Mm. So, so mm. those thoughts, it, it didn't hurt me in any way. But mm-hmm. I'm just trying to, you know, sure, highlight. sure, sure. Yeah. So certainly, we could be assumptions of our students, like especially with those with disabilities. Often, teachers would not give a task, thinking uh, like he or she may not be able to finish it, or they may not be able to, because they have an assumption thinking, oh, he may not be able to do the this. points of reference. They would call the 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 thinking that you already have about a disability about the race about the color about the age we think like oh the person is too old he can't do it but actually they might be doing it so those quick reflecting sure sure sure. Yeah. yeah, you well, you you brought up another uh, really great point, and it, it it got me thinking about a uh, a session that I sat in recently talking about self awareness, and, and it talked a little bit about kind of um, you know breaking down self awareness into kind of internal and external. You know, wh- you know what we we know about who we are, and then how others might perceive us, and uh, you know that gets into a conversation about you know does our uh, you know does our intent do our in- intent and impact meet, but you know. Self-awareness to me, uh, well, there was an interesting statistic in this. And the statistic was that this research group kind of put some some quantitative uh, data into um, trying to kind of assess self-awareness. And, and, and what they found was a very high number of people felt they were self-aware, but a very small number actually met the criteria for self-awareness. And, and it reminds me of this idea that, um, <laughs> you know, uh, driving uh you know here in the united states and and driving across the world people that drive often think that they are great drivers but all the other drivers uh are not so great um and and self-awareness is kind of the same i think we often think that we're all self-aware and that we're tuned in but the truth is that we're often not and and that reflection you know when we you know how do we get there we get there through reflection so so i think some great starting advice and uh, i'm sure the three of us could probably uh, talk about this for probably another hour but we have kind of come to our, our time limit here and i do want to be mindful of uh, your time i mean i know it's early in the morning there your day is starting uh, my day is on the other end right now but uh so i'm going to be probably going off to figure out what i'm having for dinner here soon um, but I really greatly appreciate you uh, from across the world, on the other side of the world. And isn't it amazing that, you know, we can have this conversation and share this, but to bring your insights and experience and philosophy uh, to all of us and, and, and what I kept hearing um, in your words, um, you know, about, you know, um, really respecting following the lead of children and, and learning and, and, you know, knowing who they are. Uh, I think it's so meaningful for the work that, that we do here. And I think that the work that is needed to make the world a better place, uh, frankly. Um, so anyway, with lots of gratitude, I want to thank you both for, for being here. I do want to give you a chance. If there's any final words you want to leave us with, uh, it's always nice to give you an opportunity for, you know, one last uh, thought here and, and I'll give you both that opportunity and, uh, you know, Mira, I'm going to start with you. So if, if you have any final words uh, of final. wisdom that you'd like I'm to leave us with. I'm really, uh, grateful again. Uh, I actually have lost birds because I'm uh, feeling so blessed to be with you and with everyone who's here with us today. And thank you all for all the amazing work you 
do collectively and individually and so grateful and once again i want to reiterate it's all about self safety connection and belonging so let's make our kids feel belong and safe and that's all i wanted to say <laughs> so that's fantastic thank you. thank you so much and and balji any any final words that you have so, so when when i mean i wouldn't take long so so when we are just talking about that self awareness i would i would suggest uh, a book from the 1970s uh, by the great uh, british philosopher uh, jacob bronski the book is called the ascent of man uh, so where he talks about people having a public life and a private life so the awareness what what are the things that we might do in public when we put on the public face and what are the things that we might do differently when we have the private face so i i would suggest you know for people to have a have a uh, even have a read uh, the summary of the book it's a, it's a great um, point for for that concept of self awareness we were just discussing about that's fantastic that's great well uh thank you both again uh we're going to say goodbye to our audience that's watching live even though they're not watching right now live uh, and i'm going to ask you guys to stick around i'm going to hit the button to stop us here in a second uh but i just want to say thank you to everybody that took the time out of their day to day to join us and watch this uh, event uh and of course um i meant to ask you and probably meant to share this as well but um is there any place that people can go if they want to connect with you or learn more about your work how might people be able to connect with you we can give our email and uh, contact address and uh, anything they need from us more than happy to collaborate and share guy okay so, sounds great and uh, i'm going to actually take a look here and see uh well i'll tell you what i i can share that with folks if you're interested in connecting uh, i don't have it here at my fingertips right now uh but we'll certainly share your information if folks are interested in connecting or uh sometimes people ask for uh if you'd be willing to share the slides so i'll be happy to We'll okay, share great. the slides and any other resources from there. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're going to say goodbye to the people that are watching, and you guys can hold on here for a second. So thanks again for joining us, and we will see you again next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.